I'm Susie Everett, and my husband Tom and I live in Brownsburg. We have three children, two daughters still at home, and an older son. And we've been members of Zionsville Fellowship for about 15 years. I've been a part of this Bible study, Habits of the Heart, nearly all of those. The title of this week's lesson is A Call to Faithful Obedience. And Eugene Peterson describes obedience as a lively, adventurous response of faith that is rooted in historical fact and reaches into a promised hope. I love that. I want that. I'm guessing you want that too. Rooted in historical fact reaches into a promised hope. That's where the people to whom Moses were speaking were, and that's right where we are too, isn't it? So speaking of where we are, you can turn to chapter 10 in Deuteronomy if you want to follow along. It's up to you. In the first nine chapters, Moses has been reviewing history for the Israelites. And before he goes into the specific laws that will start in chapter 12, he gives this exhortation or pep talk in chapters 10 and 11. Starting with verse 10, 12, excuse me, 10, 12, where he says, and now. So they've been reminded of who God is. They've been well reminded of who they are. And now. Before he begins those 15 verses coming up of very specific commandments, he prepares them with these essential principles in chapters 10 and 11, encouraging them and enabling them to know better this God they are to obey. And yes, they will eventually make the mistake, as we often do, of focusing on the trees rather than the forest. But for now, let's take a good look at the forest with them. And we'll start with verses 12 to 16. And I'm going to be focusing on the verses from our lesson that deal with obedience specifically. So please bear with me. Verses 12 to 16. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Then to verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. And then in chapter 11, you may have noticed this pattern that the first sentence of almost every paragraph begins very similarly. So let's look at those. Verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Verse 8, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Verse 13, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain. Down to verse 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, And when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, 
Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. And verses 20, let's see, verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn away from the side, wait, excuse me, turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today. And then in verse 31, for you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. And the today refers to all those chapters that are coming up, right? Those are the commandments he's giving them. Lots of do's and don'ts. We've seen that throughout Deuteronomy. Many are the same. They must be important because he keeps repeating them. So although there are lots to consider, even in these two chapters, I was especially struck by 10, 12 to 13. And that's sort of a summary when he says, what does he require of you but? In fact, my translation says, what does he require of you only to fear the Lord your God walk in his ways? Um, So it's a great place for us to land, I think, for now. So I'm going to read those two verses again. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So there are five commands listed there specifically. Uh, fear the Lord your God. And fear can, can, is similar to revere. We fear him because he's awesome. We also don't want to disobey him. He's mighty. He can be wrathful where sin is concerned. And so we want to fear him. That we have the utmost in respect for all of his qualities. Walk in all his ways. And your version might say walk in obedience. There's a narrow path that he gives us, and we're to walk in it. And they are to walk in it. Love him. He's made it clear throughout Deuteronomy how he loves these people. He rescued them. He cares for them. And so in response to all of that, they are told to love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And again, your translation may say worship. Serve and worship him. And keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Well, since I started working on this, I keep calling this a to-do list for me. I probably like to-do lists, right? It's really more of a lifestyle, isn't it? And let's be honest, had they given their lives to just those five requirements, they would have pleased God very much. His word makes it clear that he not only knows our hearts, but he cares about their conditions above any particular duties, rituals, or sacrifices. Um, Obedience. I want to talk about that definition for a moment. It interests me because, like many of you, it's a daily challenge in my own home. And let's start with a basic definition. The Oxford Dictionary says, "Obey, Obey means to submit to authority or comply with a law. So we can assume an authority figure in that case and or a law to be obeyed. And the Hebrew word shema, which is 
the word used in Deuteronomy for, for obey also means to listen or to hearken. So there's that connection between listening and obeying. Listen to what I say and then do it. So the opposite, disobedience, would be not submitting or complying. Sounds an awful lot like another word in our dictionary, or excuse me, our glossary, a three-letter word starting with S, sin, omitting to do what God's law requires or doing what it forbids. Stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, turning aside, acting corruptly, sinning against. Those are all phrases used to describe the Israelites. Disobedience is sin, and I think I'm safe in saying that all sin is also disobedience. And in fact, it came to us through that first disobedient act in the garden, didn't it? 1 John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. So when we don't follow God, we are not following his law, we are disobeying him. We're in sin. There's good news coming. So a review. Obedience looks like deference, submission, respect, listening, and doing in accordance with authority. And it requires a willingness to hear, a recognition of authority, humility, and meekness. So what did this mean to the Israelites? Well, as Moses has been recounting, they have a history, right, with obedience and the opposite. Their own parents, the generation prior, who had doubted the Lord regarding a battle they were supposed to fight. Then they disobeyed by going into a battle they were not commanded to fight. Grumbled about their food and water and overall conditions of this time in the desert. Creating an idol to worship. In all these cases, we saw consequences for disobedience. So they are well aware of who they're dealing with, God, what he expects, and what happens when they fail. So that alone is motivation to, to obey, right? He gives more reasons um, because of who he is and what he's done, because he cares about their hearts and for their own good. And I hope that jumped out as you, at you like it did at me, not only here, but also um, in some verses we've read earlier this year. Verse 624, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And in Deuteronomy 8.16, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. And we'll get to Deuteronomy 28.63, as the Lord took delight in doing you good. Well, that's what, just what parents and teachers do and sometimes say, right? You need to obey me because I love you. We're told that God set his affection on them. He loved and chose them. And like a loving parent, he says, you won't like this, but it's for your good. So it's for their good, but it's also somewhat daunting. Verse eleven twenty six says, blessed if you obey and cursed if you do not. And that we could say is unambiguous. Not like the mom I heard in the Riley Hospital waiting room once, who said to her toddler climbing on the furniture, you don't do that at home, so you definitely don't do it in the doctor's office. His response, I do do it in the doctor's office. I thought, well, he was right. He was. He was. Um, sometimes we don't always say things clearly, right? And uh, that's not the case with our Heavenly Father. He is quite clear. All through Deuteronomy, the countless ways in which they will be blessed are spelled out for them. If only they will follow those guidelines of fearing, 
loving, serving, and obeying him. And that description of the promised land that we get in these chapters certainly sounds like paradise. But we know what happened there. And sadly, we know from reading ahead in the Bible that God will be true to his word once again, and they will be exiled for just that thing, disobedience. They will eventually pay a high price. But for now, they go in with high hopes and extravagant promises of faithfulness. Well, what, all, what does this mean to us now? Everything changed with Jesus, so what is our obligation to obey? He said that he came to fulfill the law, but not abolish it, and called his disciples to even higher ideals than the Ten Commandments. So where does that leave us? Well, let's be clear. If you're not a Christian, then obeying God probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you. You don't see him as an authority, even though living by his standards would still bring good to your life and others. But if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, then accepting him as your Lord is part of the package. We follow and obey him as evidence of our our salvation, not because it justifies us, not because it justifies us. Jesus is taking care of that for us. And Kathy made that very clear for us a couple of weeks ago. But other reasons to obey him include doing it for his glory, to bring glory to him, which is a high priority all through the scripture, out of gratitude, setting an example for others, winning others to Christ, out of a healthy fear of God, out of a desire for eternal life, and to follow Christ's own example that he set so beautifully for us in obedience. One of the books I read um, had four pages, I think, of reasons and motivations to obey. So I'm just skimming the surface with, with those. There are so many listed in Scripture. One of the best is to please God, right? Our teaching pastor, Drew Hunter, has been leading us through First and Second Thessalonians. And a couple of months ago, he made this point that it is possible to please God with lives of obedience. First Thessalonians one says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And Drew said, This idea of pleasing God with obedience is a neglected but pervasively biblical theme. We can please him. When you love someone, you want to please them, right? And we should care about that. So if obeying God pleases him, what are we supposed to obey exactly? Well, some of you may be familiar with a best-selling book called The Year of Living Biblically. I don't know if any of you have read it. I confess I've not read it. Um, I listened to A.J. Jacobs' TED Talk, and I read a couple of interviews that he did, and I think I probably will read the book. I'm curious about it. Um, Jacobs is a writer, humorist, and a secular Jew who went on a spiritual journey with a twist, if you haven't heard of the book. He decided to follow the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments, as literally as possible, which led to some um, awkward, funny, and impossible situations, of course. I love that he said he tried to follow even what he called some of the Bible's startlingly relevant rules. Imagine that. I I understand he did a lot of research, trying to understand the reasons behind the laws, and made a sincere attempt to see what impact this might have on his life. And he admitted that changing his behavior had changed his mind in some positive ways. 
His conclusion in the end, though, was that since you can't possibly obey every single commandment in the Old and New Testaments, which nobody's called to do, by the way, you have to pick and choose. And interestingly, the impression he gave is that he was going to choose New Testament laws that he personally approved of, like loving and forgiving, and so he's going to create his own, his own religion there, I guess. So if we aren't supposed to imitate Mr. Jacobs, what are we supposed to do? Even if you leave out the Old Testament laws, uh, which seem not relevant for Christians today, there are many commands in the New Testament. Some estimate over 1,000. And that would be surprising to a lot of people, wouldn't it? One cannot keep them perfectly. Well, back to Deuteronomy 10, 12, 13. In our lesson this week, we saw that the commands on what I call the to-do list those five commands are confirmed in New Testament scriptures, although some aspects may be executed differently because we now live under a different covenant. Fearing the Lord. Still, still we're called to do that. Not groveling, not mindless fear, but saying yes to the one who saves you, being in awe of him. Walking in obedience faithfully to what he's given us to do. Loving him passionately serving the Lord with all our heart and our soul, worshiping him. It looks different than it did for them. We don't have those specific things to do that they were given, but still. Observe the Lord's commands and decrees for our own good. This doesn't work real well for a checklist mentality. Did I fear God today? Check. Can't really go through it that way, can we? It's more about being than doing, which is a challenge for many of us. It's what we're called to, but it's big picture stuff, fearing and walking and serving. But we're on this side of the cross, so we can make a slightly simpler list by going to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 22, he was asked, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you remember Deuteronomy 6, 5, very similar. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. In Luke 10, 25, a similar conversation. He was asked, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. It's been said that if we could obey those two commandments, if we can focus on those, loving God, loving our neighbor, we won't have to worry about the details of all the others because we will naturally be doing those, won't we? If we love our neighbor, we won't lie to them. If we love God, we won't set up idols. That's a great example of focusing on the forest rather than the trees. I can ask myself in any given moment, am I loving God right now? Am I loving others? But we wonder if we can, right? Can we? Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called The Whole in Our Holiness, and I read it several years ago, and I didn't get the title of the first chapter, Mind the Gap. Since then, I've been blessed to travel to London 
um, and utilize their metro system. And this sign became very familiar to me. When I went back to this book in preparation to teach today, I understood the warning now in both contexts. De Young is referring here in his book to what he calls the gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. He says this must change. It's not pietism, legalism, or fundamentalism to take holiness seriously. It's the way of all those who have been called to a holy calling by a holy God. This reminds me of something Jenny Allen wrote. In America, we've learned the art of being verbally passionate but highly unresponsive Christ followers. Christ says over and over again, there is no such thing. Well, I put a cartoon at the back of your sheet, which you'll, you'll get to, and it was a kind of lighthearted approach to this gap idea, and it made me laugh just because I thought, I think it says the gap won't take care of itself or mind itself. The world won't help us with the gap either, right? The, the world is quite happy for us to say one thing and do another. In fact, as long as we say it here and don't take it out there, they're even happier. So that's something to be cautious about. Well, is it possible to obey? We know we are a flawed people, fallen, not one is righteous, the Bible says. So how could we possibly think we could obey him? Well, he says, Jesus says in John 14, that we can. At least he says, if you love me, in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So he says to do it. Yet we know we can't do it perfectly, and that can tangle us up. We can focus on how difficult it is, impossible, really. But then we remember that's why Jesus came and why he died. He did it because we can't. We can rest in knowing that he obeyed perfectly, and when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, his sacrifice covers all our inadequacies. And that's all true. And we have assurance from that. But we are not to give up on or forget about obedience. To quote Paul, by no means. DeYoung helps us here. He says it's one thing to be humble about our piety. It's another thing to think piety is impossible. The truth is that God's people can be righteous, not perfectly, but truly, and in a way that genuinely pleases God. And there's that idea again. We can please him. God does not expect our good works to be flawless in order for them to be good. God is pleased through Christ to accept our sincere obedience, although it contains many weaknesses and imperfections. God not only works obedience in us by his grace, it's also by his grace that our imperfect obedience is acceptable in his sight. Well, how does that all work? And I don't have all the answers today, by the way. But let's go back to those John 14 verses and get the rest of the story. I'll read them again. Uh, John 14, 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Abide in him, 
and he abides in us, right? So we obey once by accepting his invitation to come to him, to be born again, to be his disciples, and then he helps us continue obedience by his Holy Spirit living inside us, giving us both the desire and the ability to obey. He promises to transform us, which is exactly what is necessary. How does he do that? I don't know. I think John Calvin had a clue. He said, true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. I'm sure you've heard of Helen Keller, and perhaps you've heard of Annie Sullivan, the amazing teacher who broke through her blindness, deafness, and muteness to bring out her extraordinary intelligence. And if you've seen the movies or plays based on that, you know that was quite a battle, right? This is a quote from Annie Sullivan. I have thought about it a great deal, and the more I think, the more certain I am that obedience is the gateway through which knowledge, yes, and love, too, enter the mind of the child. Helen had to learn to obey in order to learn what Annie wanted to teach her. And eventually from that, a lifelong, loving, and fruitful relationship resulted. As a parent, this fascinates me. As a child of God, it's even more wonderful. Somehow in his kingdom, loving, obeying, and following, and fearing, and trusting, and listening all work together in not a vicious circle, but a virtuous, virtuous circle, a phrase I learned this week. Because we obey him, we learn to know him better, we can then trust him, we love him more, we obey him more, and so on. By the way, you can't trust someone you don't know, so therefore, you can draw your own conclusions. Somehow, this happens, and it happens by spending time with him. I can't get it, I can't get it right otherwise. I don't know how it happens, but happily God says it does, and though it seems quite mysterious, um, he promises, and we know his word is true. This is a fitting place to insert an excerpt from uh, the Narnia series book, The Magician's Nephew. It, you can't get much better than that when you're going to give a lecture on obedience and you're reading the C.S. Lewis book, and there's a quote right out of it. Um, Aslan uttered a long, single note, not very loud, but full of power. Polly felt sure that it was a call and that anyone who heard that call would want to obey it and what's more, would be able to obey it. Oh, not there. Um, anyway, that was written by a man who called himself the most reluctant convert ever. I think he might have heard that call, right? And wanted to obey it. Well, have you heard his call? Are we listening for it? How would we know? Even if it's a lifestyle and not a, doesn't apply well to a bullet journal, we can still have helpful strategies. And speaking for myself, sitting still and being quiet, nothing is more challenging. But I'm finding it's ever more necessary, just like prayer, reading and memorizing scripture, Bible study and being with fellow believers for encouragement, and even teaching my children. That was, that was one of the uh, commands given in our lesson this week, right? And when we're teaching our children, we're learning ourselves, right? Psalm 25.8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant 
and his testimonies. So we can trust him to come alongside us when we give ourselves over to him with time and space, whenever that's possible throughout our day. There's uh, no wrong time to do that, but the beginning of the day is, the, is a great time. And C.S. Lewis said, the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. I love that, that vision. And the first job each morning consists in simply shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. We can only do it for moments at first, but from those moments, the new sort of life will be th- spreading through our system because now we are letting him work at the right part of us. All part of that virtuous circle, isn't it? Well, what about when we fail? Well, first of all, we should probably be thankful for being aware of our failures because we wouldn't be without his help, right? We will fail. So will those around us. And we have to start with repentance or forgiveness, if that's the case. Persevering and trusting. Trusting that we can look forward to a transformed life that he promises. Colin Smith said, This is absolutely the essence of Christianity. Not simply that the Lord will forgive you for your mess-ups. It is that he comes and lives within you and empowers you to press forward in the pursuit of the life to which he calls you. Well, what about our attitudes? Because failure can also look like obeying in a less-than-joyful manner, right? We've all seen that. John Piper says, I'm often asked what a Christian should do if the cheerfulness of obedience is not there. It is a good question. First, confess the sin of joylessness. Second, pray earnestly that God would restore the joy of obedience. We're meant to find deep joy in following him closely. Third, go ahead and do the outward dimension of your duty in the hope that the doing will rekindle the delight. Obeying him, um, even without joy, is, is better than not obeying, right? But we need to ask him to help us with that. That's how others are drawn, drawn in, right? By joyful obedience. Eugene Peterson said, what we require is obedience. The strength to stand and the willingness to leap and the sense to know when to do each. Which is exactly what we get when an accurate memory of God's ways, remember, remember, we keep hearing that word, is combined with a lively hope in his promises. Well, I'm going to read a passage from Jeremiah 32 that Drew brought to us early in the year. It's one of my favorite. And then um, we'll be about finished here. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good, and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And so many of those words we've heard in Deuteronomy, haven't we? The same idea, same ideas exactly. 
Well, the same Colin Smith, who I quoted, um, has a daughter-in-law, our dear Katie, and she is going to sing now. Um, Let's just bask while she does that in the overwhelming grace and prodigal love of the Lord our God, who, knowing we would fail, made a way to bring us into his presence through Jesus Christ and enables us to live in this beautiful freedom that comes with knowing him. I urge you to commit yourself to ask him to help you partake in that circle of loving and trusting and obeying and knowing him more and more. Thank you.
dismissed.